Hello, this is Deborah Clay, author of The Borrowed Boy and Just Be, and presenter of Castaway Books. Each week I invite an author to tell me about the books that have inspired their life and influenced their writing. This week's guest is Marion Thorpe. I'm delighted to welcome Marianne Thorpe to my Castaway Island today because Marianne is another of my Friday Salon regulars. And if you haven't watched it, it's the Friday Salon is a weekly tweet chat that we have. And it's an absolute delight for me to meet people that I chat with every week. So thank you, Marianne. And for me to meet you too. That's lovely. Thank you. Thank and you for having me on. You're welcome. And the timing's great because your sixth book in the Empire series, the very popular Empire series, was published just recently on the 30th of August. So perfect timing. Yes, lovely. <laughs> so congratulations on that. And I know that the books are very popular. So if anybody hasn't read them, go to the link after the show and you can find out all about the Empire's um are they called are the Empire's Air Books or Empire's Legacy? Empire's is Legacy is the overall Legacy. title. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a mixture of historical and fantasy because you correct me, but I think that you were saying that it is set in a fantasy world based on historic, his, on historical. Yes world yeah it, the the geography and history resembles that of northern europe it isn't uh there are some significant differences in the geography and also in the history and the social structure but it's not it's non-magical fantasy and there is no magic it's simply a different society uh that's evolved in a very different way essentially after the decline of rome so that's, it's it's very hard to classify into a genre. <laughs> Interesting concept. I'm sure we'll find out more about it as you talk through your book choices. Yeah, uh, I think so. <laughs> Shall we start with your first book? Yes, my first book. Um, and Enid Blyton. Uh, <laughs> now I've forgotten his title, The Caravan Children, I think. The Caravan Family. Uh, the Caravan Family, thank you. Um, yes, it... I don't even know where the book came from um, in our house. I, I'm assuming uh, one of my English aunts sent it to me just for a little background for whoever's listening. Um, I'm a dual British and Canadian citizen. My parents emigrated from Britain after the Second World War, along with a lot of others. And, uh, but I grew up in Canada, but with that constant sense that England was home. And um, when my mother said home, she meant England. She didn't mean where we lived in Canada. And all my aunts and cousins and everyone else was still in England. So they sent things at Christmas and birthdays. So I'm assuming the Enid Blyton book showed up one of it, in one of those parcels. And what I remembered, what I remember about it, it's been a while since I've looked at it. I don't have it anymore. Was that there was a sense of... Well, first of all, Blyton had a very good sense of describing the countryside. She would, she could capture a, a feeling of a location or a uh, or a place in a very few words, um, but still really evoke it. And that was the interestingly, that's the first thing I remember uh, about reading that. And then the second thing 
was the freedom. Uh, the, the gist of the story is a family, dad's returned from the war and they're looking for housing, which they're not finding. And they've been living with the grandmother, I believe. And they end up with these two, what they what would have been called in the books, gypsy caravans, complete with pony uh, or ponies. Um, and they travel around Southern, I think it's probably Kent and Sussex, if I think about it, for the summer before finally finding a place to live. Um, and the, just the sheer freedom of that, the, the ability to travel those lanes and walk the footpaths and, oh, the adventures a little bit that they got into, um, just really resonated with me as a, as a child growing up in, in Canada uh, in a very odd way, um, because it tied in so well to the stories that I heard from my parents about their childhoods and, and my grandparents who lived with us too. So, so it was sort of a, a affirmation of a reality that I didn't know. Do you feel Canadian or British? Do you have both? Both. It's it's very strange. I mean, I've spent um, I up until the pandemic. After after we retired, um, we've spent we spent every England have spent every England in winter, every winter in England, um, and uh, and in a place that I grew up with stories about the the area that my father grew up in. So I do feel very sort of, I very much that dual citizen piece is the half of me's there and half of me's here. And, and um, we had planned to move to England actually uh, after retirement. We both, my husband's uh, Scottish by um, same thing, parents who came right after the war. Um, and basically we, we knew where we were going. We knew exactly where we were headed and then Brexit and we just sort of thought maybe not. <laughs> Do your father, I think you said your father came from Norfolk. Yes, that's right. Which isn't far from me. I live in East Anglia. Do you? Yeah, my sister's in Norfolk, which is about an hour's drive from us. And we're right. on the Essex-Suffolk border. So not Right, far. yes. Oh, yeah. Well, we know uh, the area around Minsmere quite well because um, birders. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, the coast, the whole East Anglian coast is, is we know relatively well. But yes, yeah, so my father was from um, Dursingham, which is right outside Sandringham House. Mm -hmm. um, so that West Norfolk, right on the wash. So that's where we we have spent winters for the last number of years up until last winter. And we were actually there when the pandemic started and the message came you know from the Canadian government come home so we did sadly yeah. otherwise you might still be here <laughs> yes we might be uh, explain to me I haven't heard about lots of people um emigrating to Canada after the second world war what was the motivation do you do you know why um well I think it was a couple of things uh work for one um and there were you know after the Second World War, uh, England was a pretty depressed place in many ways. The rationing was still in place well into the 50s. Um, jobs were not that easy to come by. And I think that a lot of people were simply looking for a fresh start somewhere else. Um, and uh, my father, who didn't fight um, because his eyesight was appallingly bad. He literally probably couldn't have seen six inches in front of him without his glasses on. He and his parents ran a small holding in uh, 
Bedford or just outside of Bedford. Uh, so he was involved with food production anyway. They were glasshouse tomatoes and, and uh, various other crops. So he probably would have been deferred, could have been deferred anyhow. But, um, but his parents were, by the time the World War was over, were you know, in their 70s and ready to retire. And I think he just thought this was a good time. Uh, my mother, who had served in the war, she and my father's sister were both saw um, service as uh, in the Signals Corps. Um, she, I think, to, you know, I think they just wanted something different and something new. So was off to Canada. Very adventurous of them, pioneering spirit to get up and go. In that era. And leave your whole families behind. I mean, absolutely everybody. It was, it was very brave. It's mm -hmm. actually my mother's and her and my aunt's story of of being um, soldiers, forces members in the war, which is the basis, the the, the real basis of, of my first book, all well, of the whole series. But it started what I was thinking about with Empire's Daughter started with that concept of of Britain um, drafted women in the, in the Second World War for you know, the first countries to ever do so. Although they weren't going to see, you know, frontline service, they were still, they were still drafted. Neither, I believe, neither my, mo my mother, I know, volunteered right at the beginning. And I believe my aunts weren't either. But, but that whole concept of suddenly women are being asked to do something they've never been asked to do before. Um, and basically the message coming from Churchill and others is that we cannot win this war without you. We need every man on the front lines. We need you to take these spots that otherwise, you know, that men would have had. Mm -hmm. And that and that whole disruption to their life and their society was what I started thinking about. But I didn't want to write a historical novel with all the restrictions and constraints of writing a pure historical novel. So I put it in this in early medieval world and uh, but looked at the same issue what happens when you ask women to fight mm, mm, interesting I've um, spoken to women who are older women now one lady in particular who told me that during the war she worked on planes and she was flying planes and she had the training as a result of the war and the amazing things that women got the opportunity to do and then after the war it was right back in your box now wasn't yeah. it You've done your yes. bit back to being, being behind the man really interesting what they went through yes absolutely that that re and that was many places not just not just britain because women working in munitions in north america found the same thing but yes i mean some of those things, like the women who did ferry the planes and and you know my my mother went off to she was uh seconded to uh, work with Supreme Headquarters Allied Forces Europe in, in under Eisenhower in and they were in stationed in Versailles, and so she probably would have never got to go to Paris and Versailles and mm -hmm. and and you know and the other part of it was the secrets they knew the she was signals so they were getting the encrypted messages coming in and knowing things knowing things were going to happen, um, uh, you know maneuvers like the one I believe that. Is, was the basis of the movie A Bridge Too Far. Um, she, I can remember her telling me she knew that. They, she knew it was going to happen. She would never, ever talk about it for the rest of her life. She had signed the Official Secrets Act and she had signed it for her entire life as far as she was concerned. So, 
amazing yeah. really strong yeah. women. do you have you taken after them do you think as a strong independent woman you look, yes mm. yes I, I i have the women in my family especially my father's family are unusual uh for their times um i have multiple had or have in multiple generations multiple childless working women in it at a time when that wasn't usual um uh, or you know either working without being uh with with never marrying um or not formally marrying and um but also women who did marry chose for whatever reason biologic or otherwise not to have children uh put themselves into their careers and you know rose to quite high high uh, levels my the last one of that generation of my father's generation is my cousin who still who lives in Norfolk who is a hundred oh, and she, yeah and living on her own and, and uh, yeah she's pretty amazing um, and she was a, a, a teacher um, Oxford educated she had Tolkien and Lewis as lecturers so listening to her stories about those is just wonderful. And uh, yeah, just so very, very strong, independent, well-educated women ran, run in my family. My older sister is has multiple degrees. She was a lawyer for a while, um, you know, so yeah. It's all a lot to live up to as well, I should think, when you're a young woman growing up. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> should we go on to your second book? Uh, yes, my second book was Lord of the Rings. And, um, I, but not for the usual reasons, I don't think. I, I read it very young. I was 11 going, well, I, yes, because it was Christmas before my 12th birthday. And my father had asked for it um, from my sister, who is 10 years older than I am. So she was away at university. And, you know, it had been getting some buzz at this point. So this is what year am I thinking? This is 1970. So it had been getting some buzz, you know, around the universities by then. And he'd heard about it and he was curious. So he asked for it. She brought it for him for Christmas. And I just started reading it. And I, my grandmother had taught me to read when I was three. So I was, I would read anything. I mean, absolutely anything. And we lived in a small farming town in Southern Ontario. And it had a, it did have a decent library, but nonetheless, I would, you know, still, I take out eight or 10 books in a week and, and uh, read them all and take them back. And this was between Christmas and New Year's, so the library was closed. So I needed something to read. So there was Lord of the Rings. So I read it in three days. I can still remember that oh, reading non-stop. Huge fat book. Yeah. I felt pretty sick by the end of those three days. I can tell you, I can remember that too. That sort of, oh, I'm going to throw up if I'm not careful. <laughs> but, um, and, but it wasn't the magic. Um, it was the things that, that pull in most people into the, it was again, the sense of landscape, the sense of freedom, the travel, and that really, really strong sense of this ancient, ancient world that, that was there. Um, and I, that's going to be a pretty common theme in all the books I chose. And it's a very, it runs through my own books, that theme. And only, what would I say? One of my other major hobbies is landscape history and landscape archaeology. Had I probably, I will say this probably, had my parents stayed in Britain, had I been born, you know, if, if, ifs, mm -hmm. all the if, ifs. 
I might have known that landscape archaeology was a profession. And I suspect I would have been a landscape archaeologist. Uh, growing up in Canada, I'd never heard of it. I didn't time team like for many people <laughs> was how I learned about it. And then I can remember watching those when my husband would concur with this, watching those early, early time teams and realizing that you could be a landscape archaeologist and just saying, oh, why didn't I know that? <laughs> um, but again, interestingly, I wouldn't have done it here because I, there's no real connection for me to the land here. Um, you know, you, when you look back, Canada's been settled for, by Europeans for a few hundred years. I have no inherent connection to indigenous culture. So while part things that are part of the landscape that are indigenous are interesting, I don't feel any real connection to them. Whereas when we're in Britain, especially in East Anglia, but not only, uh, you know, I can be walking on footpaths that people walked on, people from my family walked on 400 years ago, and they were walking past the same Bronze Age barrows that are there today. And there's just a much more visceral sense of connection to the land and its history. So yeah, landscape archaeology is my British hobby, not my Canadian one. Uh, I know what you mean, though. I love that feeling of going somewhere and just imagining centuries and centuries before. For me, it's um, houses in particular. And I go into a medieval house. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, one of my favourite books is The Strand, Daphne du Maurier. Mm -hmm. I read that when I was quite young and I always had that sense of wouldn't it be wonderful if you could just roll back the years, the centuries yes. and be standing here and see what it was like and who was living here all of those centuries before. And wouldn't it be magical if you could just do that? If I had a superpower, I think it would be that, be to stand somewhere and just reel back and just watch it. <laughs> not, not go there, just watch it, observe it. <laughs> Have you ever read um, Lucy Boston's Green No series? No. They're what? children's books and oh. they're set around a medieval house. And that actually happens in a couple of the, of the books where the time just sort of melts and people end up in a different um, uh era in the same house and it happens in one of Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising series too. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, the book actually called The Dark is Rising and yeah it is, it's just such a wonderful concept of saying all right well um, I can remember my my great uncle uh, was curator of the pictures at Hampton Court Palace and he when he died he left all his papers and memorabilia and everything to Hampton Court. Don't know why, but he did. Um, so they have it all neatly called the Rainbow Archives, all neatly boxed away. And about ooh, 15 years ago, my sister and I went and to look at it because we wanted to see what he'd had. And so we were in parts of Hampton Court Palace that the public doesn't get to see. And it was, it was eerie. It There was definitely that sense of my God, Henry VIII walked these halls, you know. Um, there's this very, very strong sense of connection to history. And, you know, you can almost hear the ghosts, right? In sort of, in a way that the echoes, it was a marvelous experience. Mm, I love Hampton Court. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful place. 
Mm. Now we we'll move on to your third book. I get so I get so distracted and interested in conversation. I have to keep myself on track. So we're on to your third book, The Hollow Hills, Mary Stewart. Herein lies my first, uh, what's the word, exposure to a Britano-Roman culture um, just after the Romans leave. Um, and I, I mean, I loved all, all of that series, um, but it was, again, the thing that really grabbed me in that first part of the Hollow Hills is the description of the villa and the crumbling hypocaust and that sense of there was something here before and this is what is here now and they are connected. Um, there isn't this, okay, the Romans left and we became, you know, dark ages peasants again. Um, and yeah, that really, really got my brain started on, on my interest in post-Roman uh, British history. Um, I, my books owes a fair chunk to her, I think, in those books. So what would you have been doing in your life about then? How old would you have been? Um, Hollow Hills, I'm guessing I read it in my 20s. So I was in university. Um, what were you studying? You weren't doing archae landscape archaeology? No. Uh, my university was a little, uh, well, not as bad as my husband's, but I jumped around a bit. I started a history degree and uh, in Canadian history. And that was sort of, eh, after a year, it was okay. Again, same, no real connection, right? No no real sense of, of a connection to it. It was very much purely an academic subject. So it wasn't working for me. So I, I, I decided to stop and I took a year off. And then I went back and my next two degrees, my undergraduate graduate degree, are in agricultural science to be <laughs> complete change right um so i can tell you all sorts of thing about breeding corn <laughs> maize and and other such lovely things um which it was what my father had done um so i was very much following in his footsteps in that in that direction and so did my brother actually so it was sort of but again if i look at it it was a way of connecting connecting myself to the land and to the soil and and being being outdoors and and I was, the history of agriculture was, a, again, I, you could, my interest went that way, um, even though my undergraduate degree and graduate degrees are in practical plant breeding. So at the time I read The Hollow Hills, I would have been probably doing that, um, uh, either in directly in school or doing research, which I did after, for, I was a research associate for a few years afterwards. But, but you know, I already never lost the interest in, in you know other parts of my life and the things that I was interested in so but yeah that's it's it gets blurry you know trying to remember exactly when you first read a book yeah yeah so when did you meet your husband in your 20s or later no in my 20s very I'm in 1978 I met him um so 40th wedding anniversary this coming weekend. Oh, um, congratulations. I was a young 23. I can't believe I got married at 23 now, you know, I looking back then, on it. Then we thought we were old. I got married at 24 and I thought I was old to be getting married, but young people today don't think about getting married until they're 30. No, I, I know. I mean, I have a 23 year old niece and I just look at her and I think, oh, I, 
got married at her age. <laughs> um, so yeah, so yeah, so we met at university. Um, and again, he'd been brought up in a house with a lot of interest in history. Um, and so we shared that that interest as well as a number of others. And um, so we talk that while we were in grad school, um, we took a, for the fun of it, we took a couple of courses in the evenings on Scottish history, one pr uh, prior Scottish history up to uh, probably the union, I think, and then probably one afterwards. I don't remember the second one, but the first one was great. And our professor was this really young, really vibrant, great storyteller, fresh out of university himself. He probably wasn't that much older than we were. <laughs> But he was such a wonderful storyteller. And he just told us all sorts of stories that had nothing to do with real history and everything to do with folk history. And I, so this all blended together really well at the time and started my imagination going. Wow. All of this has all contributed to your, your life as an author, hasn't it? Absolutely, yes, yes. So shall we go on to your fifth book? Uh, fourth. Oh. Well, I'm looking at it, but <laughs> the northern girl. <laughs> okay, this is a bit of a departure from the others. Not entirely, but it is. Um, so again, one of the things to tie this into myself as a writer, one of the things about my world and my books is that um, heterosexuality is not the norm um, or not the only norm, um, shall I say, that basically all forms of sexuality are, are unexceptional in, in the world that I have written. And the first time I ever saw this written in a book where it really was simply part of the background of the world, or it was in a series called The Chronicles of Tornar by Elizabeth A. Lynn, which were published in the late 70s and, and um, early 80s. And I just, I can remember reading those books, which are also very rooted in their landscape um, and in history that kind of looks like Britain, but isn't. Um, and thinking, oh, if I ever write, write anything seriously that gets published, this is what I, I, this is the way I want to write the world, right? And this was, so this I would have read for the first time, probably in round 30, and it was the 80s and AIDS was happening and we have friends who were affected by it and friends who were uh, just coming out of the closet and friends who were getting arrested for being gay and a whole bunch of different things going on like that. And, and I guess I just really, the contrast between this world that Lynn had described, had envisioned and the real one struck me that one of the purposes, and I still believe this strongly, is that one of the purposes of speculative fiction, whether it's science fiction or whether it's fantasy um, or whether it's whatever it is I write, um, is to show us a world where things are possible um, that if you presented them in a real life setting might be too challenging or too threatening to some people. But by putting them in a world that's either set in the future or in a completely different world, um, they are less threatening because it isn't our real world. And so you can actually back off and think, what, what if, you know, what if that was like that uh, in, a, in a different way? It occupies a different place in your mind, I think. And that's what I wanted to do. So um, that's why I also, 
the other thing is that her writing style really influenced mine too. So she writes in a way that I found very uh, not flowery, but not not Hemingway either. <laughs> so somewhere in between the two. That's really interesting what you say about creating a world to try out different things because it's more acceptable to people than imagining in their own world. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Are there any particular, um, sexuality was one thing, Are there, I haven't read your books, but I will do, but was there any, any other areas that you particularly wanted to explore in your writing through putting it in a different world? Um, really just the, the whole concept, as I said, of what happens to a world where, where women are suddenly challenged to be part of, uh, to, to defend their land in a way that they haven't had to do before. Um, then there was the whole issue of what happens if this happens in a non-heteronormative society. And the third thing I really wanted to, to talk about, although it's not as challenging in a way, is um, there is a underlying sense of um, where's the balance between personal freedom and what you give up for your country. Um, Where's, where, where is that balance, right? Like between, I had a reviewer quite recently say that this was a very interesting concept given our current circumstances where people are arguing about giving up the freedom, uh, what, what's the freedom of not being vaccinated or not wearing a mask and all these mm -hmm. things versus the good of the country, right? So, so that was definitely one of my one I mean obviously not planned for, for a pandemic I didn't know was coming but um, just the whole concept of the individual freedom versus versus the public good yeah absolutely yeah very topical you don't write blogs <laughs> do you I can say make, make a good topic for a blog to connect I do actually have a blog um, I don't think I've ever challenged that I've ever thought about writing that one I tend to stay away from, I tend to stay to history and non-controversial subjects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we are on to your fifth book now. And my fifth book was Tagana. Ah, oh, yes, Tagana. Guy Gabriel Kay is a Canadian historic fantasy writer um, who has written about 18 books and won the World Fantasy Award and been a huge influence on me. He writes books that are very similar, wait a minute, let's back that up. I write books that are very similar to this in the way he takes real history and twists it slightly to create a slightly different world. His books include some magic, unlike mine, but basically everything I learned about world building, about creating this not quite real world based on our own history came from reading his books over and over and over again. So I had to choose one and I chose Tagana um, because it has the same themes as mine. What will you give up uh, to, to, for the land that you love? But the twist in Tagana, which I absolutely love, um, is that the wizard who conquered the land of Tagana has put a spell on it that no one can hear its name spoken. So he has effectively erased the country from history. And that's the real concept behind the book is that what, you know, is the complete loss of a country's history um, through the, through, a, you could say, a colonial power. And that whole, that concept really, really interested me. So 
so it is of his all his books. It is my favorite. They're all challenging concepts. Um, none of them are simple, but that one really caught my attention. And there's a lot of other things in the books. The way the there are some characters and groups of characters in Tagana, which significantly influenced some of mine. And I, I knew that right from the start. I say it's a homage to him, not a, not a not copying, but there are, there are things that are similar. But it really got me thinking about that whole sense of history and what is history and how easy it is to lose a country's history um, simply by you know, either a colonial power purposely um, removing it or simply by the loss of story and language. Um, so all those things become part of my books as well. Language, history, lost history, um, it, but in very different ways. That's interesting because it's not just countries. As you were talking, I was thinking about how our own histories, our family histories, our childhood, um, the, the stories that the family and we passed from one to another, how important that is, the whole thing of storytelling, because it may not even be the reality of what happened. It's people's recollections of what happened, but they become the reality. Now, That's right. Yeah. My husband um, doesn't have anyone to tell him about his past because of his upbringing. He was adopted and et cetera, et cetera. And when I ask him questions, he says, well, I don't know. I don't know because I've got no photographs. I don't know what are real memories and what people have told me. I've got no siblings. I've got no family. So I don't, he doesn't know his history. And yeah. it just shows how important storytelling is, but also how it gets distorted as people have different recollections. I mean, have you ever been with um, school friends you've met up with that you haven't seen for years? And then you've compared your recollections and you see like completely different perspective on something to what you've, you've lived with. Yes, absolutely. In fact, as I was thinking about that only the other day, because I've been talking to my hundred year old cousin and she had been telling me a story about the time my sister and I took my father back to England and we went to visit her. And my recollection of how the conversation went and hers are very, very different. And, you know, to the point where I now no longer know which one's real. <laughs> like, what did happen? What was said? I don't know. She has her version. I have mine. And maybe it's somewhere in between. I, you know, I, I should ask my sister sometime, sometime what she remembers. But, but yeah, um, family stories are so important. And as you said, it doesn't matter whether they're, that's what really happened. That's what, that's what the family believes. And that's what some of the things that help create family is that there are shared stories. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same for organizations too. In my work as management consultant, I'd go into an organization and as organizations come together, um, emerge, there's this whole thing about the history and the story and the shared experiences that you bring together, which makes the um, culture of the organization. Yeah. Storytelling is very powerful. Yes, absolutely it is. Um, one of my main characters is, is a, well, the equivalent of a bard, but, but his role, that role, his, his role is, um, is to be the history keeper and the storyteller for his culture so that those stories are passed on to, to children and, and through song and story. Um, and, that was purposeful. I mean, the, you know, there's this whole sense of 
of passing on history and passing on story that happens. And yes, it's it's incredibly important. Um, and unfortunately, too easy to get lost, I think, now in an era of, of uh, families not being together and and other forms of entertainment taking precedence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And technology changing so quickly that you wonder if things you've captured in one, um, you know, we've, like, we've known videos and CDs and things, and they change and change and change without having the written longhand writing and photographs you can hold. You wonder how much will be preserved yeah. as technology changes. <laughs> That's right, because I, I already know people who can't access photos that they took um, 20, 30 years ago because they're on a media that no, that can't be read anymore or in a program that can't be accessed any longer. Mm-hmm. We had this huge photograph album when I was, well, we still have it, but um, it was it was in this huge coal, le- coal company ledger, my, which my grandfather had worked for the coal company for his entire working life. And, and then he'd collected in his retirement, I guess, all these family photos. And he only labeled about, a third of them, maybe. And I can remember as a child sitting with him and then later with my father and going over who was who in all the pictures. And, but again, nobody ever wrote it down. It was all up here, right? In everybody's mind. And now my sister and I about five or six years ago, well, my brother, before he died, we sort of realized that we were the last people who knew who these people were in these photos. And, um, and we better start writing it down <laughs> because yeah. if the next generation cared or, or wanted to know, there wasn't going to be anybody who could tell them. Um, and so we, we made a concerted effort to write, write it down and write down the stories and things like that that go with it. But you can also see, I mean, we only have, among the three of us, we have, my brother had three children. So, and they're not terribly interested no um so you can see where these stories are going to eventually get lost anyway which i guess is normal but it's it's a little sad it's sad hopefully somebody somewhere will pick them up so let me just ask you um how long have you been writing for did you always want to be an author and when did you take yourself seriously as an author well i've always wanted to be an author um i probably wrote my first things when I was about six or seven um you know not that they were any good but uh, I wrote a bit in my 20s late teens well no that's silly was my late teens I started my started the great Canadian novel when I was about 17 Mm -hmm. um of which I wrote about half but interestingly the same theme attachment to the land and what you will do to defend your land Mm -hmm. and um then I wrote a bit in my 20s mostly nonfiction. Um, a lot of nature writing and then I got caught up in careers and didn't write until sometime in my mid-30s I think and I started writing poetry which got published and a couple of really bad novels that didn't (laughs) and uh, and then I started writing Empire's Daughter when I was about 40 and it took me 15 years to write because I was working in a demanding job. We were traveling a lot. Um, my parents were elderly at that point and needed a lot of care on the weekends. So didn't have a lot of time. 
Um, and then it was published when I was 50, 50 something, 53 maybe. Uh, when did I start taking myself seriously? Probably when the poetry got published, actually. Um, once somebody else out there was validating that, yes, what I was writing was, was um, worth writing, worth publishing, worth other people seeing. So I did start taking myself more seriously then. And then basically, once Empire's Daughter was accepted by a publisher, not the publisher it's published with now, but the one that, that originally accepted it went out of business, unfortunately, but they, the rights reverted to me, so that wasn't a problem. So somewhere in that sort of fourth, 40, in my years between 40 and 50, I think I really started to take myself seriously, as seriously as I do, let's put it that way. <laughs> We never take ourselves too seriously it's not no. good <laughs> okay we've got through your books so i have one last thing to ask you mm -hmm. and that is what would be your luxury that you would take with you on the island ah uh, did i answer that <laughs> i mean no, all my binoculars Yes. for your bird watching right you... yes of course it was yes it was my binoculars I, I you know it. you're stuck in this little island somewhere there's probably going to be lots of great birds fly by oh, that, <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful one to have excellent oh, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you i could go on all evening but i'm not allowed to because i won't be i won't have enough time to be the limited time that i can put up there so <laughs> i'll have well, to thank say you very much but it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for joining me on my island. <laughs> Thanks, Deborah. Really appreciate you having me. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode of Castaway Books. References for all of the books discussed in this show can be found on my website, which is www.abrakdeborah.com wordpress.com it's the letter k and then my name deborah d-e-b-o-r-a-h so until next week goodbye <laughs>